And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 29th, 2021, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Amelia Brust and David Thornton. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the 2020 decennial count isn't the only major program the Census Bureau has had to delay. Plus, what will it be for DOD, for structure or soft power? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Federal News Network's open season hotline. Today's question, I'm retired and I'm happy with my current plan. Do I need to do anything this open season? As long as your current FEHB or Fed VIP plan or providers are still covered next year, which you can double-check on OPM's plan brochures, you don't need to do anything this open season to continue your coverage. But enrollment in FSA Fed's flexible spending account programs do not automatically renew, and the same goes for Medicare plans. Check out our open season hotline. Head over to federalnewsnetwork.com and search open season hotline. You can post a question there or call 844-305-1500. That's 844-305-1500. Send us your questions. We'll read the answers daily at 7 past the hour here on the Federal Drive. The Labor Department's new initiative to modernize the technology underlying the delivery of unemployment insurance, it's far from your typical IT project. Labor has more than 50 customers, each at varying stages of development and with varying types of technology. Michelle Evermore is the Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization at the Labor Department. Gundeep Alawalia is Chief Information Officer. They tell Executive Editor Jason Miller about their plans to help states tackle this challenge. I think that a lot of times when people say modernized, uh, you know, they look at that as being, uh, you know, sort of a specific thing and it's not often cited is the statistic that, you know, 18 states have modernized. And, and so then all of a sudden those systems are, are are perfect and ready to go. And all the states that haven't modernized are broken and cannot possibly handle, um, handle any, any sort of challenge. When in reality, you know, there, there are modernized systems that are modernized to various degrees. Some modernized systems really struggled while other quote-unquote non-modernized systems, systems that are still on COBOL, did very creative things to push through a lot of claimants. The other thing I just flag is, you know, it's it's been very difficult for states to come up with funding to modernize on their own. That also has, has been a challenge uh, across states. I think one thing to, Michelle, if you could kind of talk a little bit about it, it's clear that what labor is doing is not modernizing a system. It's It's helping states modernize their systems that then tag back to the labor department or have some kind of integration with labor department, but there's not one system, right? No, we still have to recognize that there are 53 state systems that all require a great deal of customization because their laws are all different. What the labor department is doing, there's basically two tracks of activity that are dealing directly with uh, tech. One is the sort of immediate deployments to states to help them uh, sort through their backlogs, promote equity in the system, and um, fight fraud. So there's that immediate hands-on effort that's going to try and find easy fixes within the, the fastest fixes within the systems to push claims through. We are doing something along the lines of modernization by developing modules for states. And we're going to, we are going to work on um, centrally developed technology modules that can be deployed into state systems. But, you know, one thing we've learned from 
uh, for example, healthcare.gov, is if you try to build one big thing all at once um, and deploy it all on the same day, it's definitely not going to work. And that, that, that would be multiplied by 53 if we tried to uh, modernize all state systems uh, on a federal level. So let's start with that immediate effort, uh, the track one that you mentioned, deployment to states, sort out backlogs, promote equity, fight fraud. What's, what are some of those first initial steps uh, or, or the steps that labor has been taking over the last few months? So, so far, we have deployed six teams to six states. We're calling them Tiger Teams. And they are there to sort of identify process flow issues and then help to figure out how to maybe automate some solutions or collaborate with people who can help provide solutions. So those are in place in, in, in um, six states. And on those teams, we have tech experts. We have process flow experts, equity experts, fraud experts, and of course, unemployment insurance subject matter experts who can sort out the rules. And then they all report back to a central backbone that that will be federal employees. And uh, that team mirrors those teams in the field so that when we find a solution in one state, um, they can communicate that to the central team. And the central team can then, when we recognize the same problem in another state, in another set of deployments, we can just pass that solution on to the next state. Uh, and, and that's really the key here is, is everyone has similar problems, but no one's the same. But if you can get the 80% solution, the, the, the 85% solution, then you can start kind of really get, making some progress very quickly. Gundy, from, from your perspective, how are you supporting this effort on, 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 from a labor, internal labor perspective? Are, are you providing what types of services? Did you provide some of these folks on the Tiger team? W- what's your role? During the pandemic, we helped uh, many of the states at that time with tactical help, right? But but that stage is gone. Now we are partnering with OUIM, uh, Michelle, her teams, the Tiger team, the Central team. A couple of things we've done. We are partnering with USDS. And Michelle talked about the initial modular designed uh, pieces of software So the first piece is we have decided to do what we call as the claimant experience pilot, right? So one of of the things that that is happening is around claimant experience. This is very tough. It's cumbersome. It's complex. So there is a focus and we will be partnering with a few states to pilot that, learn from it, and try and come up with a module that hopefully can scale over time. And and then it sort of uplifts the user experience or the claimant experience uh, across the board. The other thing that we've been involved in heavily is providing ID contract that we have done with various service providers. And we are now working with states so that they can implement AAL2 and IAL2, which is the NIST standard recommended solutions to prevent and catch fraud while not affecting equity uh, adversely, right? So the the goal is we're trying to help uh, uh, states through that contract vehicle, which which has been awarded. And now we are hopefully going to put task orders. We will also leverage that capability for this claimant experience pilot that I talked about uh, with the United States Digital Service Michelle, the other piece of this, and, and you mentioned uh, six teams, six states. Are you able to tell me which states are, are among the first ones? And are those teams mostly U.S. digital service folks? Are they a combination of, of feds that you reached out to, contractors? How are they put together? 
The USDS work is the long-term sort of building of components that, that states can ingest over time. And so the Tiger teams are sort of a different effort, although we do make sure that there's a lot of communication across those streams. And the, the Tiger teams are actually staffed by uh, Grant Thornton on the state level. But the other piece of this is this is something that you are project managing, right? Those Tiger teams are coming in to those states that are working based on the needs that they've ex- expressed, the things you've seen from the Labor Department. And, and that's that's really where those expert, that expertise is coming from. So it's contractor-based, but based on a combination of, of, of factors. That's right. That's right. And I also would be remiss to leave out the, the the important input that we're getting from the National Association of State Workforce Agencies. They've been helping us a lot. They've, they've already been engaged in a lot of assistance work uh, across states, especially prior to the pandemic. So we obviously can't ignore the things that they've learned and the tremendous uh, expertise they bring to the table. The ID management piece, let's go down there maybe for, for a little bit, because I think that's a key factor. I talked a little bit about the climate experience pilot. So what we will try and do is utilize in that central module that USDS and OCIO are developing, right, to test as to how this climate experience would work along with a ID verification that prevents uh, most of the of the fraud upfront, right? So there is a preventative kind of an effect of implementing IAL2. But I think we are also acutely aware that this should not impact equity or timeliness of the claimant experience, right? So we will be working hard to integrate and utilize the services of ID providers to do that. Login.gov is a, has been a long-term partner for the Department of Labor, right? On uh, many of our projects, like the Foreign Labor Certificate Gateway, our flag uh, application already relies heavily on, uh, uh, and many other applications within labor. So we intend to leverage that continued partnership in the longer term. What exact shape it will take and how we will bring it into either the claimant experience or offer it to the states we are obviously in, in, in conversations with login.gov, and that sort of uh, has to be informed by the pilots and what we learn uh, during these claimant experience pilots uh, with the states as well. That takes us a good segue to the money that the Labor Department received from the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, something around $2 billion. Uh, a lot of that money, I imagine, is going through to these Tiger teams, to these these capabilities. Give me a sense of, of how much, not just how much you're spending, but but what, what that money is being used for. And then what does fiscal 2022 and beyond look like from a from both a cost and a priority perspective? Some of this is going to be iterative budgeting. We're starting to spend money on some projects and we'll see how which ones work the best. And that will be where we uh, shift our focus in the future. Some of it has gone to Tiger Teams. So what, what has already gone out the door is $140 million in fraud grants. And 260 million in equity grants. And that, when I say that's gone out the door, it's been allocated. The other thing that we're working on is in conjunction with the Tiger team assistance, we will soon have a UI program letter that details another, an additional 200 million for states to be able to use to apply the recommendations that the Tiger teams come up with. From there, you know, the, the money has not been, you know, allocated 
but we are expecting a very large sum of it to end up applying to the, the, the centralized modular systems. And just to be clear on the centralized modular systems, these will come from the pilots, the Tiger teams. Oh, this worked. This was a common problem. Now we have it for everyone to use. And now, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that some of that money can then be uh, grants <laughs> given to, provided to, however you, what terminology is perfect, uh, to states to, to implement the module, right? Yeah, so so the the two hundred million will not necessarily be to implement the IT module, but to implement whatever process improvements that the Tiger team comes up with, and that might be something like making sure that the website is disability accessible. It might be hiring more call center folks or something like that, right, um, to, to to handle a particular problem. But that's going to end up um, being part of the the Tiger team recommendations. And, and really. The, I was going to say, and yeah. really the improving the process, which is what your end goal is. The modernization, to be clear, doesn't have to be a technology modernization. A modernization can mean many things. And we, we like to talk about tech, but we know that there's a business process reengineering. There's people, as you said, too, right? Exactly. Some of this is just figuring out how to move claims through. And it, it could definitely involve a, a personnel process or hiring a, a consultant for, for various purposes. It could, it could involve in a number of things. Michelle, I want to talk the other piece of this is you, you mentioned kind of the, the, the two pronged approach. Uh, you mentioned the, the first one, obviously, is the, the Tiger teams and, and going forward there. The second piece, obviously, these modules. Can you walk through a little bit what the modules look like or, or what they're initially looking at to, to see if this would be helpful? If this is a, a are there common problems that they're trying to solve across the states or across the country? So right now we're definitely in the research phase of, you know, asking states, first of all, where are you in your modernization process? What are the things that we could build that would help the most states? Lay out for us what your actual problems are and we can figure out which modules might be helpful. Is it that you uh, need a login help? Is it that is it that maybe you want um, a, a technology to uh, provide short-time compensation, work-sharing benefits? Um, some a, a lot of those systems are still on paper. We're still in the phase of asking states what the questions, what, what the, the right questions about what services and technology they need. And from there, we will build pilots and hopefully scalable pilots, but we'll build them with a couple of willing partners first and then um, deploy them in other states as, as we find out that they work. How long is the research phase? Do you expect to have some of these kind of initial pilots later, early 2022, mid 2022? Do you have a sense yet? The first claimant experience pilot, we are working already. We are, we are working with talking to multiple states. Hopefully we will make a selection soon. We hope to get something out there next calendar year, uh, right? Uh, early first quarter of that calendar year. But as we are doing that, we are also trying to identify what other pilots make sense, like uh, Michelle said. Uh, I don't want to time box the research because I, I almost feel like you have to learn from each pilot. And as you're doing that, there will be other pilots that will emerge, right? But certainly, I think there is a propensity. We've heard from various states that a claimant experience pilot where with some level of central ID verification is, a, is something that they, they are looking for. So that, that one is clear. The others, I think, are more in the research, and I do not want to time box as to what the, that research phase is going to be. I would certainly expect more pilots during 2022. 
Going deep, I want to follow up on that in the sense of labor has gone through a transformation in and of itself. Are there some lessons you're learning that you've learned over the last few years that now you are applying to this effort? Because as Michelle and you've said, this is not one size fits all. This is not a one big bang. And just like labor has multiple bureaus that are all have different kind of needs, there's some similarities, but they're not all the same. So uh, absolutely, uh, Jason, I think the running a a modernization strategy with the diversity of mission that labor has from protecting people's 401ks to writing workman compensation claims to running apprenticeship programs, that kind of diversity has a lot of complexity. And we've been able to choreograph a strategy and execute it to it over the last few years. The lessons from that are uh, obviously the state-run UI system is probably as complex or more, I would say, right? So the idea is, one, not to treat it only as a technological modernization, right? It, it is business process. It is a fundamental policy uh, uh, fixes. It is uh, us people uh, associated with it. So a lot of that has to go together in order to reform or modernize uh, this ecosystem. There's also this need to fix the system today. And and I think that there's a little bit of an urgency factor here, given what we saw during the pandemic over the last 18 months. How do you balance that urgency with the need, as Gundeep said, this is complex, we need to test, we need to then figure out if it works, and then scale, and then then move out? I mean, this, you know, a lot of people concerned that this can be a three to five year modernization effort when you have an urgency that says you need to fix certain things like the claimant experience uh, as, as one example today. How do you how do you achieve that balance? I don't know if Michelle or Gundeep, who's better for that one? There was a, a initial, when the pandemic happened, like last year, we tried to help a lot of states. Right? Some states didn't have even laptops. So they went into a complete remote structure and we partnered with them and did the best we can. Some states needed DB2 uh, tuning, uh, uh, Adobe forms, and, and all of that happened. But I think we've, we've, we've gone past that, you know, that barrage. And I think the states have found uh, a way to, to cater to the, the increased load at this point in time. I think the Tiger teams and other efforts are going to continue to partner with the states to find those tactical opportunities. We will happily engage where needed. But I think the focus also has to be building this long-term resilience, building this plan and running the marathon and, and, and sort of not looking at the sprints, right? There are so many sprints that have to happen, but then uh, it is the marathon that we need to begin because it, it is 26 miles. We better... And we are in mile two. The other thing that I would add is really that, you know, modernization, as, as you pointed out earlier, is, is a lot, about a lot more than tech. And so in order for the tech and the policy and the administration and the business practices to all come along together is going to be difficult. But I think, you know, all of this should layer on to a, more, a, a better, more resilient underlying unemployment insurance system. And, and you know, ideally, the, the unemployment system can be made to scale automatically during times of recession. I mean, some some of that definitely requires legislative fixes as well. So there's, there's a lot that goes into this. 
Michelle Evermore is Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization at the Labor Department. Gundeep Alawalia is the Chief Information Officer. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what will it be for DOD, force structure, or soft power? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, 
I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from 
the Pentagon, they stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.